Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You know what my favorite text is? A Waypoint and the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey. The list on the Onyx Hunt app features for chasing turkeys is long, but knowing exact public and private boundaries and land ownership details will help you find more places to hunt, whether that's on public or private. I'll be toting the Hunt app through the spring woods in a few states this year, and I recommend you do the same if you want more turkeys on your table. Also, Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com slash hunt this spring. Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. All the things that it takes to be a really good dirt lion hunter, Warner, is all of those. Everyone. On this episode of the Bear Grease Podcast, we're back in the open country of Southeast Arizona. This is part two in our series on the life of a living legend, Warner Glenn. We're also going to learn more about Kelly, Warner's daughter, and her life in movies and modeling. We'll dive in deep into dry ground lion hunting, which I believe will aid us in getting our PhDs as knowledgeable American woodsmen. You gotta know something about dry ground lion hunting. We'll also learn about when Mr. Warner almost went to prison and how it impacted his life, including his involvement in the founding of a very influential conservation group called the Malpai Borderlands Group. You're not going to want to miss this one. I think if a person doing what he likes to do, that's a big thing for his head and his heart both. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant. Search for insight in unlikely places and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. Guys, we've got an exclusive Bear Grease discount code 
for FHF gear. That's Fish Hunt Fight Gear. I've been using their products for the last year, and I love carrying my gear in a chest rig or my binos in their bino harness. It's easier and more accessible than a backpack, and it doesn't get in the way when I'm riding my mule. For a limited time, you can head over to fhfgear.com forward slash bear grease, and listeners to this here podcast get a discount on purchases for your FHF gear system, and you can see how I build my gear system. So go to fhfgear.com forward slash bear grease for a special code if you're buying stuff from FHF gear. Check it out. Fish Hunt Fight, FHF Gear. We've again found ourselves on the borderlands of the southern United States and southeast Arizona. On the last episode, we were introduced to Warner Glenn. He can see old Mexico from his house. He's 85 years old and lives the life of an authentic American cowboy with a heavy dose of mountain lion hunter. Lion hunting and ranching, you see, go hand in hand and have since this part of the country was settled by cattle ranchers. I'm going to have you ride a little one this morning. Called Rosalie. That's the name of the mule you're putting me on? Yeah. Rosalie. How old is this mule? That's the only problem with her. She's about 17. 17. Yeah, and it's too bad. You hate to see a mule like this get old. We walk over to a bigger bay-colored mule, a brown mule. Yeah. So th- this is your go-to mule. This is, what's yeah. this mule's name? Yeah, Vivian. How old is she? I tell you, baby, and she got to be about 15 years old. This is your, this is the one you go to when you got to. Well, usually I'm, I, I ride this, at least other, every other day. I've got three I ride pretty regular. Bridger and Vivian and, and uh, Brer. Yeah. So, and Kelly, she's got Rosalie and Pete and some of those others. <laughs> when when does a mule get just right in eight? The, the it depends prime, on the mule. Prime years. It depends on as long but, but I tell you what, as far as being gentle and trustworthy and everything, I would say like six or seven. Really? To where you could trust them yeah. with anybody yeah. riding them. And you can, you can ride them at two or three, but... You better be ready for a little wreck if it should happen. Yeah. You know, because yeah. they're just not used to everything. Yeah. And, yeah. and also, these mountains, I tell you, they're hard on the people. Yeah. 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 Mr. Warner threads a leather pistol holster onto his belt. He carries a 357 revolver. So every day when you're just out riding, you're it, carrying a sidearm? I, I, I do. And what, I, do you, I, what do you carry? Well, I, I tell you, you never know when you're going to need need one for it could be some kind of a barment but most of these ranchers nowadays are serious side on the drug traffic through here and also the well you never know so it doesn't hurt to have one (laughs) yeah we're now out by the dog kennels in part one mr warner told us that he's got 16 hounds and he told us about his best hound hook What's what's this dog's name? This is Tracker. He's a young one. He's only a year and a half old. But he's been in on about three 
free land, and he's going to make it. I've really got high hope for him. And this is Spur. Wow. He's a big old athletic dog, isn't he? He's only two? He would be number two. Oh, he's the number two dog. With 16 dogs scattered in front of us, we make a five-mile loop, giving them some exercise. On our ride, we can look into old Mexico, we can see the border wall, and I'm amazed that an 85-year-old man is still going like he's 45. Warner's father Marvin started lion hunting in the 1930s when their horse colts and cattle were being killed by mountain lions. It wasn't their fault. The lions were just being lions, and it really wasn't Marvin and Warner's fault for becoming lion hunters. It's just what they had to do to protect their way of life. In 1947, Marvin had become an expert at what we say in the business, catching lions. The American economy was booming after World War II. People began to have disposable income, and Marvin turned his craft into a business and started outfitting. The Glens became nationally renowned as dry ground lion hunters. In 2021, Warner and his daughter Kelly still hunt the same dirt as Marvin with some of the same lineage of dogs and with the same unique mix of integrity genuine hospitality and toughness that defines this desert and the people that make a living off the land here. Before we dive into lion dogs and fist fights, I want to talk about Kelly Glenn Kimbrough, Warner's daughter. She has lived a very interesting life. We heard about her mule wreck and helicopter rescue and about her getting bit by a lion. Go check that out in part one if you hadn't listened to it. I'd like, though, to hear about two parts of her life that went beyond ranching and hunting. I bet you won't be able to guess what they are. If you're over 35 years old and a gun enthusiast, you've probably seen a picture of Kelly. We were always a part of the hunting, so my dad and my grandpa Marvin hunted all winter. They hunted a lot of lions and deer. We guided for coos deer, mule deer, javelina, and lion. Mm. And it was a busy, it was just what I thought life was about. Yeah. It was either cooking, fixing lunches, feeding meals, guiding. I guided from the time I was 17 mm. with them. I did not want to go to college. I loved it. I mm. craved guiding. I loved guiding for coos deer, especially, and hunting mountain lions. Mm. And so, and they, they embraced that. And it was kind of a man's world. Yeah. You know, I was a little girl growing up wanting to learn how to track a lion and wanting to go glass for deer. I didn't have any reason to go to town. When I went out to go off to college, my grandpa got me a new rifle, a parka, all these things to make my life more comfortable as a guide here. Because uh... he didn't want me to go. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, mom and dad raised us and my grandparents to work really hard. We always had guests. We either had hunters yeah. or in the summer we had kids. So I went to college and then I came back and went into the movie industry. 
and I did casting and locations for eight years out of Tucson. Wow. And I loved it because I could go work on a show for 31 days, come home and hunt. So I kind of so picked... So you, you, they would tell you what they were looking for for scenery? Yep. And was it, was it always Western type films? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, I did 33 films. It was We did Terminal Velocity with Jerry Lewis, Johnny Depp, Faye Dunaway, Paulina Poroskova, and then we would do Young Guns and Young Riders, and sometimes it was scenery, and then sometimes it was... What years did you do that? From 85 to about 93. Okay. I got married in 92, and I kept doing it for a moment after that. That's so interesting, your family's connection to... To movies. Yeah. You, uh, well, you know, Nair started a long time before right, that. Right, right. Yep. With your dad and the movies yep. he was in and grandfather. I now asked Kelly about a very interesting job she had for 31 years and how her presence in the position was groundbreaking. So in 1988, J.D. Sard came. He was a good friend, you know, and he asked, he called me and he goes, Kelly Ruger called and they want me to photograph a girl or a woman that lives a Western life, carries a gun, and uses it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, you know. And I had gone right out of college. I went to Plaza 3 Modeling in Tucson Mm. because a lot of my family, distant family, said, you've got to be a model because I was six feet tall and skinny. That was their basis. (laughs) After a few weeks of that, I figured out I didn't want to be a runway model. But So we went down here and took a mule, and I had... Literally, my husband calls them my corrective shoes because that's all I wear is ugly shoes. I had on my brogans and a gun and braids. I mean, I was who I was, and we took the picture. Well, they loved it. Bill Ruger Sr. was very skeptical because he was a man's man, and he really didn't want his company represented by a girl. Mm. And in 19... 88? Yeah. That would have been fairly that new was, thinking. Yes, it was new thinking. Yeah. So it was a trial run that first year, and there was a full page in the Wall Street Journal. There was It, it just blew up wow. and went really good across the nation, <laughs> yeah. and the, the Ruger followers loved it. So you were on, you were on a lot of their advertising. Yeah, posters. And, they did a poster yeah. every year. You stayed the, the Ruger girl for 31 years. 31 years. years. Yeah, yes. and just on on our way here, my uncle told me that he had seen your picture in a small town in Arkansas in a pawn shop from a poster from years and years ago. Yep. The, so I would do two shows a year, the NRA show and the SHOT show. The SHOT show was more dealers, international, national, you know, guys in business suits. The NRA show was Americans. It mm-hmm. was it was coon hunters, farmers, gun store owners right. that would come with their family because they could. So my job at those shows was to sit in the Ruger booth, and they would put a stack of posters in front of me, and I'd sign, and they'd tell me who to <laughs> sign to. The The man would stand there and say, my store is, you know, B&B Guns or whatever, oh, okay. and I'd sign to that store. When they all figured out, all those people— Figured out I was a hunter for real. They loved it. And then they would like flock around and we'd talk about trail and dry ground hunting lions. But it was great. I have, I kept a lot of things. I got a lot of letters. You could tell a a person, a woman 
who wanted to become a shooter and a hunter, she would timidly stand over there and listen. And when finally they kind of broke up, then she'd step up and she'd say, is there any way you could, we could talk about this again? Mm. And so I'd share my address and, and or nowadays, it, it lately, you know, the last 20 years, it was an email. Right. But, and we'd visit back and forth and I'd recommend what firearms she should buy. So I coached, unplanned, I coached a lot of women and kids. Yeah. Kelly was a pioneer for women in the hunting and shooting industry. Today, women are the fastest growing group in the hunting space. Fist bumped Kelly. Dry ground lion hunting. We've said it over and over, and I plan to devote some time to trying to understand what this means, and I hope you'll join me. Despite your perceived interest in the topic, it's a nuanced and important cog in the wheel of North American hunting. I believe that the characteristics that it takes to be a darn good dry ground lion hunter are the marrow of American ruggedness. I'm not saying it's the only thing that carries that, but I'm quite certain that it does. Gary Newcomb instilled in me the desire to be a well-rounded woodsman and to get a PhD in woodsmanship. I believe that to be a true connoisseur of North American hunting, you need to understand something about dry ground lion hunting. You don't have to do it. Most probably never will. You don't have to like it. You probably wouldn't. But I feel like my insides are expanded when I talk to people who've dedicated their lives to a craft. And being a successful lion hunter requires the dedication of a lifetime. Shorty Gorham is one of the world's best bullfighters. He's worked for the PBR, Professional Bull Riders, for 17 years and has dedicated his life to his craft. His job is to protect bull riders once they've come off of a bull's back and are on the ground. They basically run interference distracting the bull while the rider gets away. They used to call these guys rodeo clowns. I find that people who are among the best at what they do are good at spotting others in other fields who are like them. Shorty is also a dry ground lion hunter. I wanted to see what he had to say about Warner Glenn. Being from the Southwest and, and hunting lions on dry ground, if you ask around, ask very many questions, you're going to hear Warner's name. And so that's that's how I had heard of him, just trying to learn as much as I could and read as much as I could. And when that topic comes up, Warner's one of the one of the big names. You know, he's he's one of the best dry ground lion hunters in the in the world. And you could say of all times, you know, they they all the well known big time dry ground lion hunters no respect and love Warner Glenn. So it's just a household name, you know? So when I got to go to his house, it was, it was quite the experience. You know, I'll never forget it. I pulled in, I I'd flown there to Arizona from a straight from a bull ride and drove a couple hours to the house, pulled in in a rental car and, and Warner comes, well, Warner was out feeding his mules, comes over and shakes my hand. And he's a very tall man. So I'm looking up at him and, and, uh, from that point till I felt like I'd known Warner all my life was, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, maybe. It's just a just a great guy, just a genuine <laughs> man. And It's interesting to me how there's some people that have that quality. And in, in your experience with him was very similar to my first 
meeting him. What is it that makes a person be able to have that kind of connection with people? I don't, you know, I don't know. I really don't. You know, the thing is, I've met a lot of his clients that have hunted with him and Warner's return clientele is just massive. Like I know guys that have hunted with him for 20 years, every single year, just because they want to go spend time with Warner Glenn, but they, they just want that connection with Warner. So they keep, keep going back year after year after year, you know, and there's a real rough and tough lion hunter. He, he once said, he said, when I, uh, when my time comes to an end and I, and I go off to the other side, he said, if, if I look around in, in my second life and I don't see Warner Glenn, I'm going to know I really screwed up because we all know Warner's going to heaven. And that just <laughs> describes Warner. John Belozier has known Mr. Warner for 20 plus years and has professionally hunted lions on dry ground for over 30 By professionally, I mean he worked for the state of Oregon managing livestock killing and nuisance lions. In 2018, John was called to ply his craft in a tragic situation. He and his dogs tracked down the first wild mountain lion in modern times in Oregon that killed a human. Wild stuff. But his hunting wasn't just a career. He loves what he does and is a lifelong student of it. He's one of these guys that's done whatever it took to put himself in relationship with the best in the world in his field, one of which is Warner Glenn. I asked John to define for us what dry ground lion hunting is. Hunting lions dry ground would be without the aid of snow for cutting tracks and tracking conditions. The reason that makes that easier is uh, if you have country that's got roads in it, that you can go and cut a lion track in the snow and A, you know the age of it because you know when it quits snowing and B, you know the direction it's traveling. Uh, So those two things are two of the more difficult things in lion hunting and you have both of those taken care of for you. A lot of the dry ground lion hunting that goes on in the United States is in the Southwest United States, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Southern Utah, Southern Nevada, places like that. And uh, I guess one of many reasons it would be harder is, uh, A, when you dry ground lion hunt, most of the time, many of the mountain ranges in the Southwest that lions live in are only accessible by horse, back, or a foot. So your dogs have to be free casted and be able to start a lion track on their own. Anybody that's hunted with hounds very much or even dealt with dogs very much would know that it would take a little more work to to be put into your dogs to have them where they would only start a lion track because hound dogs, by their very nature, kind of like to trail things. And many times there's a lot more smells out there than just a lion track. John, tell me about tell me about Warner Glenn. Um, that's a big question. Yeah. So I've known Warner for uh, over two decades. I met him in my quest to kind of learn how to be a dry ground lion hunter. That was what originally uh, sparked Warner and I's connection and has kept that. You know, the the Glens are, I consider them family. They're very close. There's certainly not a lot of people like that. Uh, you know, Warner is a cowboy and a lion hunter and a family person. I don't really think, I mean, I spent quite a little time around him and got the opportunity to hunt with him numerous, numerous days in uh you know, there's just not a lot of people like that uh, that have dedicated their whole life to something. And I might be a little bit off, but I think, I believe the first time Warner started lion hunting, he was around seven or eight years old. And he's now closing in on 85. And that's a that's a pretty long career as a dirt lion hunter. And there's not been any gaps to speak of in that he was in the military for a very short time. But 
he's pretty well spent his whole life in those mountains, you know, in the desert Southwest mountains chasing those things. You've hunted with a lot of people. What, what stands out to you? What have you learned from Warner? Oh boy, that would be a, I've learned a lot from Warner. I, I think Clay, maybe one of the big things about that is that uh, when you go with someone that is truly at the top of their of their game, which it's not hard to tell when you go do that if you you know you have a little background in it and stuff, is uh, you know Warner's Warner's just one of those rare people that you know dry ground lion hunting doing the stuff that we do is a lot of work and and Warner it he still goes out that like he's hunting snakes and that's pretty impressive the amount of work it is and stuff but uh, he's just an extremely good track reader and and is just really good at reading his dogs and telling you exactly what they're up to and he's a cowboy deluxe i mean to travel in bad country i mean you just don't get any better than that and he just uh but you know warner just all of the things that embody somebody to be a lion hunter you know he's tall and athletic and tough and and can get around and and just all the things that it takes to be a really good lion hunter a really good dirt lion hunter warner is all of those everyone there are two overarching factors that make this hunting difficult number one it takes place in rugged regions without many roads Lions can travel incredible distances on a daily basis, so it's got to be an extremely mobile hunt. A hunter has to become an expert at wilderness travel, and it's typically done with equines. Secondly, the arid nature of the land makes for difficult conditions for holding scent. It's really that simple. Dry ground lion hunting is all about scent. Scent on dirt doesn't hold well, and it makes for some of the most difficult trailing conditions for dogs. A good dry ground lion dog is a phenomenal creature. It may just look like a scraggly old hound to somebody, but in my opinion, they're the Olympians of the hound world. In humans, our olfactory strength is minimal compared to many other animals, so it's hard for us to understand how a dog interprets the world. I think we got to nerd out for a minute to really understand the currency of the hound, which is scent. I asked my buddy Chris Powell for his insight. He's a lifelong houndsman, a former law enforcement canine handler, and the host of the Houndsman XP podcast. Here's what he had to say about scent. So scent is one of the things that is key for houndsmen, but it's also one of the most misunderstood parts of how our hounds work and scent. You know, it's a living thing. When an animal walks through the landscape, it is shedding cells at the rate of about 50,000 per minute. And as those cells are shed, it's coming out through being, they're exhaling and they're losing it that way. When they brush up against plants and vegetation. They're shedding cells in that instance too. And when you look at the composition of a cell, it's 80% water. As this animal moves through its environment and it's shedding these cells either through exhaling or, or it's called scurf. Uh, the, the, it's actually got a scientific name when those cells are shed, it's called scurf. And it comes off of this this animal, this living being, and it's, it's falling onto the landscape. It acts differently in the different environments that it falls in. So when it falls in moist environment, it doesn't dehydrate as quickly. So therefore, the scent exists for a longer period of time. And when it falls into dry, arid conditions, just simple evaporation causes that scent to not be able to exist for as long. Now, in the case of dry ground, you know, rock, 
those sort of things. It's it's a deal where if the rock's got a crack in it, the least bit of shade will actually shelter that thing from direct sunlight and arid conditions just for, for a little bit. And that enables a hound to be able to smell that uh, scent that's deposited there. I asked Chris about another component of scent and trailing that doesn't involve the actual scent of the animal, but rather ground disturbance. So when an animal walks through an environment or across the landscape, he is actually disturbing natural bacteria in the soil. And he uses the, the combination of animal scent, the bacteria. Fresh earth has a distinct smell that we can smell as people. A dog's nasal plane and their olfactory is able to pick that up at, uh, I mean, compounded 75 times greater than what we can. So as an animal walks across this landscape and he's he's disturbing leaves and he's kicking over rocks and, and different things like that, it's activating the natural world right there and the, the microscopic organisms in that. Then the, the animal scent falls in that same scent picture and now he is he is able to develop what we call a scent picture and all that stuff is mixed together it's all brought together what you're telling me is that a dog is not just trailing the the scurf of a lion he's trailing ground disturbance he's trailing ground disturbance Mm -hmm. of where that lion's foot touched the dirt and made the ground smell different just like if you tilled the soil it has a it has a scent I heard a good analogy once comparing a dog's nose to a human's. It went like this. A human may walk into a house and smell lasagna cooking in an oven and think, man, that lasagna smells great. A dog walks into the house and he smells layers. He smells the Italian pork sausage starting to crisp, roasted tomato sauce, fresh mozzarella cheese, basil, ricotta cheese. He smells the individual components with extreme precision. If you haven't listened to episode 22, you're missing a bunch of background information that will give context to Warner's life. I'm assuming you know how a series works, and ultimately, we're in pursuit of getting a glimpse into his world. I wanted to ask Mr. Warner specifically about his hunting. Well, I tell you, it, it, it's kind of a tough old life uh, to be a dry ground line hunter. You got to really like it. Yeah. I, I like uh, being out in the country, of course, and and watching those dogs work, uh, good work, riding a good mule in that rough country. And of course, we're working cattle a lot. Of the, probably eight months out of the year, we're working cattle, but we have those dogs year round. And if a lion comes in and kills a calf or a cold or whatever, then we go and try to catch that lion. But yeah. usually the lion hunt we do, uh, which is mostly on dry ground, and that, and it's called that because we very seldom get snow in this country. We do right. it once in a while in the winter time we'll get a yeah. snow, but we do that about four months out, out of the year we would take clients, and then, then the rest of the time it's just when we had a fresh kill. Yeah. Either our neighbors wanted to catch one or something like that. Yeah, but that uh, that dry ground line hunting is different because you you do a lot of riding and those dogs you got, before you ever pick up a track you you got to find a track. trail and then you got to find which way it's going and in snow it's pretty easy you can see the tracks but in this country out here uh, just play grass or dirt or pine needles or whatever you're in uh, usually that track's pretty hard to find especially with a pack of hounds. 
already yeah. trailing muffin the tracks out. Yeah. So you just gotta ride until you find that track. If you're going the wrong way on it, you gotta get them turned around and head and ride, or you're gonna see a lot of country that old line just left. You're not never gonna catch anything. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. If you're going the right way, you're in good shape. Then you just go on and concentrate on. Yeah. And I tell you, you've got to help your dogs in this country. It's a rough old rugged rimrock country, and there's a lot of country. Those like that line goes through that the dogs can't go. They're bluffier, big rims. You got to take them around and hit yeah. it, hit it on top and that type of thing. So there's quite a bit of footwork that goes in. Somebody's got to be with those dogs the foot yeah. to help them. Now you were known and are still known even in your latter years here of being able to follow <laughs> these dogs on foot. Well, uh, yeah, I, you, I don't do that. It, I, I can't do that anymore. I wish I could. I, okay. And that's one thing I really enjoyed about hunting was following those dogs afoot. Yeah. Yeah, I could do it. I was lucky. I was physically able to do that for several years. And, and uh, it, it's it's a wonderful way to see what dogs are doing. What It doesn't yeah. take very long to learn uh, who's the cheerleaders in the bunch and who's yeah. doing the actual and work. The, and you were doing this, too, before there were GPS collars and you were able to track yeah, dogs. That's right. That so time, you had to, somebody had to stay with them to hear the dogs. You had to stay within hearing if you could. Yeah, and I, I, I couldn't stay right with them on a on a good. I could if they were just cold trailing. I'd just be right with them. But once they got that line moving, or got a, a jump track is what we call. They they go so fast. I could, but I would uh, I would take my time climbing the mountain. But on the other, when we started down, I I, I could really smoke it going yeah. off some of those mountains. Yeah. But but yeah. I, I had to. But, but of course, in those days, I could hear good. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of lost my hearing now. Kelly's been pounding around with Mr. Warner since she was a little girl. Here's what she had to say about dry ground lion hunting. So I love dry ground lion hunting. It, it, there's every challenge there. Mm-hmm. There's, you, you know, you have your hounds and you hit a canyon going at an angle. You're either going up or down it. And if there's a track there, they're going to hit it and they're going to go down. If it's if they're pointing down, they're going to go down. A hound can't tell what direction the lion's going by sight. Right. So the first challenge is we get in there and we find that track mm-hmm. and then turning them around. And then there's in this country, we have so many conditions and we always say we have more excuses than team ropers. There's, <laughs> there's, we're always in a drought. It's how much moisture content is in the soil, the wind, the heat. We hunt in a lot of warm temperatures mm-hmm. and evaporation. And this is really bad for scent conditions That's for right. these dogs. That's right. People don't even realize the minuscule moisture that's still in the soil, even if you haven't had rain. And we're used to mm-hmm. not having rain. When you look at a track, a, a lion track on a cow trail, it'll still have, if it's fresh, like an hour old, it'll still have color in it. So the track is still a different color than the soil. So the soil's faded out and the track will have some color. There's so many factors and it's such a challenge. We help our dogs. My grandpa and my dad both taught me, you get off your mule and you help them. You find the track. And that's that's pretty, for other types of hunting, that's not... It, that's not necessarily normal. Right. So there's more human involvement with the actual dogs on the track. Exactly. So these dogs have to be, you have to be able to call them to you. You have yep. to, I mean, there's some 
another layer of complexity with training these dogs. So in every pack, so we only take five or six in a pack. In every pack, you'll have your slower moving dogs, you'll have your strike dogs, and then you'll have a dog that'll, you can watch them. Dad has a lot of silent dogs. Mm. They don't do much barking. And, but you can watch their body language, and you'll see a dog out there 100 yards, and it's a good dog. You know him. You know he isn't a deer chaser. And, yeah. And you'll see him just working up, and you can tell he's just working up in the body language and his tail, the way it's wagging. We scoop up our dogs and take them to him. A lot of times, one of us will be looking at the track and helping the dogs along, and it's by watching the body language of the and that's a challenge because there's rocks everywhere. And in this country, scent holds longer on rock than it does in the dirt. Mm. It holds, you'll see an older dog going along smelling the underside of leaves in a thicket. Mm. And that's where that lion's body, and, and, you, and they'll, they'll, hold, they'll stop. There's a dog named Catch It. She'll stop. Her whole body will be frozen in time. And she'll be smelling, and you know she's getting, she's she she's knows really that sense. Really dissecting that. Yep, yep. Yeah. And then she'll trot forward and do it again. And I'll tell Dad if Catch It smelled it. And so we go to her with those other dogs, the slower dogs, because if you don't do that in this country, you probably won't get the lion jump. How long of a track? Let's say let's say it's just an average day of lion hunting, and you find a track early in the morning. We trailed a lion one day 36 miles. Wow. And we jumped him at 9 o'clock that night wow. and pulled him off because they were all give out. I mean, it was we knew he was jumped because even though those dogs were exhausted, their body language and their attitudes had a second wind. Right. But we pulled him off because we had gotten, we were 18 miles from the truck. We, we lead a pack mule with okay. water. Okay. Almost. Every single day, unless we've had a big rain. Uh, Water for the dogs. Yeah. And for you guys. Well, but ours, you know, normally we can all pack our own water. Yeah. But those dogs, especially in the Bighorn Sheep area, it's a very dry, rough, rocky, hot, sun-beaten region. Yeah. When they start trailing, dehydration is what slows them down first. A typical week of lion hunting, dry ground lion hunting here. Would you catch a lion? When we were guiding all winter, we would average a lion every four days. Okay. Yeah. That's that's really good. Yeah. That meant sometimes you caught one day one on a hunt, and then the next hunt you might have caught it on day six or whatever. It yeah. was kind of an average. We book a 10-day hunt. Okay. And that's because of the conditions. Yeah. You know, you just don't know what your conditions are going to be. Yeah. Freezing, thawing, yeah. heat, wind, extreme cold. We've had some cold temperatures down here and no snow. Montana Knife Company was founded by Josh Smith, one of the world's most experienced master bladesmiths. He's been making knives for 30 years, made in the USA and manufactured locally in Montana. The knives come with a multi-generational warranty and free sharpening. Designed, tested, and built by hunters, MKC is a hunting knife company first and foremost. They have the sharpest knives out of the box and the easiest knives to sharpen. And that is the dadgum truth. You better be careful with them when you get them. They are sharp. MKC is a fast-growing company. They just hired their 55th employee and are looking to hire about 50 more in the next year or so. I've carried a lot of these Montana knives and the one that I like the most is their Speed Goat. 
which is a lightweight hunting knife, just the right size. MKC knives sell out within minutes of being released. So head over to MontanaKnifeCompany.com. They have new knives for sale every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So check their website and sign up for their text and email alerts. That is the best way to find out when they have knives available. Use code BEARGREASE10 for 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work. Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Hunting with dogs is one of the most primitive styles of hunting in terms of deep human history. It's primitive because our connection with canines is undeniably ancient. Long before the modern politically correct trends began to regulate how humans think about and utilize animals, men and dogs were getting along just fine. The human-dog relationship is truly unique in the animal kingdom and many attribute our success as a species to that relationship. Dad gummit, while I'm on my soapbox, I want to share something with you. I believe that the opposition to the dog thing is much deeper and significant than it seems on the surface. 
I believe that hunting with dogs inside the boundaries of science-based wildlife management is an integral part of the expression of being human to some people. It seems like our society is very interested in preserving people's rights to express their humanity inside of their culture and in their way, which is a good thing. I believe that by changing the rules on us about dogs and saying it's not okay anymore to use them inside of hunting is to redefine part of our humanity. Hound hunting certainly isn't for everybody. And yes, there are some rugged parts of it that many people aren't used to, but we're not asking them to participate. If my conscience doesn't condemn me and it's inside the boundaries of the law and the activity that I'm participating in actually helps wild animals and preserves wild places, don't try to take it away from me because it condemns your conscience. That's the only thing I'm asking people to consider. Man, here we go. I got to say it. I'm sorry, guys. And for the odd hunter that says that hunting with hounds isn't fair chase, Man, I've got a few questions for you. What are your thoughts on the use of optics that give a person amplified supernatural vision? What about rangefinders? What about cellular trail cameras, supplemental feeding, food plots for whitetails, digital mapping programs on your phone? I'm not suggesting that these things aren't ethical or fair chase, not at all. I'm just asking us all to explore a broader way of thinking. Please hear my heart inside of this. My intent is not that this conversation would divide us, but it would actually rather unite us as hunters and allow us to see through the eyes of our brothers and sisters that live life differently and do things different than us. I said all that to say. It was a long way to get here. I wanted to ask Mr. Warner about his dogs. If you're a hound or dog person, you'll enjoy the nerd out. But if you're not... You're being brought into an intimate conversation if you'll listen. But I tell you, now I, I have mostly trail walkers. Hmm. And uh, I'm not saying they're better. I, I don't think they're better cold trailers or strike dogs or even tree dogs. But they're fair at all of that. And they're, they're really good catch dogs. They're pushers. Hmm. Once they get a quarry jumped, and running, boy, they, they're... They're fast after, on the track. They're fast on the track. Mm. And I tell you, they're not really aggressive. Those hounds, they bay something, but they kind of st- keep their they, distance. They stay back. Yeah. Even on a lion, that helps. What do you think's the most important characteristics of a dry ground lion dog for the way that you hunt? The nose, good feet, and to have that instinct to, to run cats. All of them don't like to run cats. Really? But but I tell you, uh, they they don't necessarily have to be the fastest dog in the block, but they they've got to be able to keep that track moving. Do you have a favorite hound you've ever had? That's kind of like that uh, mule deal you asked me about a minute ago. Uh, I wouldn't say this in front of the dogs down there, but <laughs> probably a, a half a half Walker and a half Black and Tan, a little dog named Kink K I N K. Mm. Uh, he was probably one of the smartest dogs I ever had in my life. Mm. And he'd go get in somebody. He could do it all. He could. He was a strike on the track. He could cold trail. He was good in the bluffs. You got in this country. You got to have a dog that's not afraid of height. He's got to be good in the bluffs. Yeah, he's got to be able to climb and navigate. That's right. And, and take some chances. You don't want them reckless. I mean, the words. They're jumping off the 40-foot bluff or something. I mean, yeah. nothing. But you want them to, if they come to a 10-foot 
drop, you want them to pile off that tucker and keep going. Yeah. You know what I mean? And most of them, some of these, you need you need a dog to get good in that rough country. I want to ask Mr. Warner about a wild component of hunting lions in the karst, bluffy regions of the Southwest. These lions don't always run up trees. Some of these stories might blow your mind. I, I tell you a lot, in this country, you're hoping you tree one. You hope you tree a lion or bed out on a bluff. But a lot of times, they'll get back in some kind of a hole or a crevice or crack or a cave, a shallow cave or a deep cave. Sometimes they get way, way back. We've had them get back in my old abandoned mine tunnels. Mm. And, and those are dangerous because you don't know if they're going to cave in. And mm. you're gonna, so anyway, the, the time that's mentioned in there, uh, Kelly and I were together, and we had that lion back in there, and we got her dogs out, and I said, do you want to go in and shoot the lion, or do you want to hold the dog? She said, I better hold the dog. <laughs> so, I, so I went in, and I did. You you want to make your shot count. You've yeah. got it. It's not a dangerous deal as far as the lion goes, but I tell you what what you got to think about in these caves, especially in the wintertime, are, are rattlesnakes hibernating. Because they hibernate, and you don't want a belly in there and crawling on, and get on top of those dang snakes or, or scorpions or stuff like that. It's what yeah. you, you, is really the danger. And also, when I you see. fire that shot in there, you got to have your ears plugged. But my ears are not too good, but I always really plug them yeah. good before I fire a shot in a cave. And you sure want to make sure that bullet goes into a vital place. And and any hunter knows you can shoot an animal through the heart and they can still run like heck for about 30, 40 yards before they drop dead. So that's what happened. I I hit the lion in the chest with three magnet pistol and boy, he just boiled out and I just, I was laying on my belly because it the cave was only about this high. I mean, yeah. And, and I, I just ducked. He run under. I, I don't even remember if he stepped on me. He might have jumped completely over me. But it, it all, it, it happens so fast. And it you, left a blood trail right down yeah, your back. Yeah, the blood it went right down. And I didn't even know that. Kelly told me later. She said, "What did you do to your back?" <laughs> I had a, a, a string of, and I said, "Well, sure, I didn't do anything." She said, "You get." Then we figured out it that was the lion. Yeah, and that's a that's a fairly common. It's pretty common for them to go in caves down here and to yeah, go and, in and shoot is. them in a cave. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and you've got you've had one run between your legs too, for, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. The first <laughs> the first thing you have to do is get all your dogs behind you. You got to get them all, and that's hard because they're all yes competition for who's going to get the first bite a hold of the lion. You know, so you yeah. got to get, and it's noisy. It's dusty. Yes. Those caves are—it's hard to see. It, and you gotta have a good flashlight. You got—you gotta have a good light because that's what equalizes. Well, it, it changes everything in your favor. When Mister Warner wants to tell you a story, you listen. He wanted to tell me this one. It involves a young hound named Catchit. I'm gonna tell you a little story about a dog that happened this year. We got a little dog down here, I'll show you in the morning, named Catchy. And she's making a really good dog, young dog. And we, we went over here uh, in that sheep area and hit a good track early in the morning and ended up baying this pretty big old tom out on, out on a bluff. Felt, and the bluff was probably 
where he was backed out on, it was probably 40 feet straight down to a ledge and then another 20 feet into a big, big rock slide, rock boulder pile. And there he was backed up on the edge of it with a tail over the mm. edge. The dogs were all right there. There, there was five, five dogs there. And Kelly and I had come in, got off her mules, and I had the rifle. And I could see that the dogs were here and the lion was right here. And I could see it broadside. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and shoot that thing before it knocks one of those dogs off the bluff. I am just barely behind the shoulder, and I squeezed it off. It was 223. I carried a little 223. And I, I hit it just where I ate. But it, it, it jumped like that, and at my shot, those dogs got in a little close. The lion reached out and grabbed catch it just like that and pulled it in and went over backwards, and they both of them fell off the bluff. Mm. It just makes you sick. And, and we how, some, how high is the bluff? It was 40 feet to the okay. to the first ledge and then another 20 feet, and this was bad stuff mm. at the bottom. We knew she was dead. Told Kelly, I said, go on down there. And get, the dogs were, had gone back and were coming around, and I went back to get the mules, and she got me on the radio, and she said, Dad. Catch it all right. She's standing on this lion fighting the other dogs off. The lion was dead. Of course, she had hit right on top of the lion's body. And evidently it broke because while we were skinning the lion, old Hook went up and hit another track. There'd been two lions. We didn't know it. And they went on and she went with them and they bayed it. In about I'll be done. three hours, they bayed it in another big patch of bluffs. And that's another story. So but that dog was totally fine after she, falling. She sure was. 60 feet. Using numbers in hunting is always touchy business, but we use math in every other part of our lives to understand the world around us, so it's relevant in this space, too. I asked Kelly if she had any idea how many lions her dad had caught in his lifetime. When Mama passed away, we went through a bunch of books. She had kept records. Dad Dad keeps a journal. My grandpa kept a journal all the way up till the year he died of mm. every lion they caught, mm. whether it was here or Sonora, Mexico or wherever. So we counted. Mm-hmm. There's a certain date that they had caught their 500th lion, and he documented that. Wow. Then we, we went on through all of everybody's accounts, and I compared. If Wendy wrote, my mom Wendy, if she wrote down they caught a lion in Hog Canyon on December 12th, I made sure that I didn't report the same lion out of Warner's Journal. I see. We were honest. I had two women help me. We went, <laughs> yeah, and we we're right now we're at about 1,200 lions. Wow. Yeah. And that's the ones in the sheep area, the depredating. That's a lot lot of lions. It is for a lifetime. When I hear a huge number of animals harvested, my mind doesn't think of a tally mark or hides on a wall. I think about the number of times that he had to hook up his horse trailer in the dark, wake up at 2 a.m., load 16 dogs in the truck, and the literal hundreds of thousands of miles he's put while on the back of an equine. And I'm not throwing that big number around lightly. Let's do some more math. Mr. Warner has lion hunted since he was six years old. As a conservative estimate, he's ridden on average 2,500 miles per year for the last 70 years of his life. And that's 175,000 miles. And he's still counting. He rides every day. 
I now want to ask Mr. Warner about how they've been involved in some meaningful ways to preserve the open country of the Southwest. This is some legit conservation. Tell me about the, the Malpai Borderlands group. I tell you what, that, there was a fellow here, a good friend of mine named Drummond Hadley, that bought a ranch over here in New Mexico, a, a big ranch, a big ranch, and he, he bought it, actually he bought it from the, it was owned by Nature's Conservancy, and they were looking for a, somebody to buy it to keep it in a viable ranch and not develop it. And they didn't want it to sell it to somebody that was going to break it up in 40 acre parcels and that, that you know, sell all yeah. sites. Yeah. They wanted to keep it as a o- open country ranch, as a cat, operating cattle ranch. And they got to talking with the uh, uh, Nature's Conservancy people, and they they met us. They and they said the ranchers ought to get together. And, and form a group to keep this country open and get to where we could buy conservation easements on some of the deeded land on these ranches to keep from subdivision out is what we've been trying to do. Yeah. So that that's what got us together. It was trying to keep these ranches in ranching and not 40-acre parcels. Very interesting stuff. Mr. Warner and his wife, Wendy, who has since passed away, were some of the founding members, and Mr. Warner is the director to this day. Here's the scoop. The Malpai Borderlands Group is a 501c3 nonprofit that was started in 1991 as the relationship between ranchers, the federal government, and some environmental groups began to deteriorate. They work with private landowners, government agencies, and nonprofit organizations to help manage over 1 million acres of unfragmented land in southeast Arizona and southwest New Mexico. The group says, quote, Our goal is to restore and maintain the natural processes that create and protect a healthy, unfragmented landscape to support a diverse, flourishing community of human, plant, and animal life in our borderlands region. Together, we will accomplish this by working to encourage profitable ranching and other traditional livelihoods while we sustain the open space of our land for generations to come. End of quote. This is a summary of what these guys do and have done. They've helped acquire conservation easements on 78,000 acres of private land. This basically means that private landowners choose to put limitations on what can be done with their land like it can't be subdivided when it's sold. Since 1994, 75,000 acres of land have been involved in prescribed fire, which is an important part of what the group originally promoted for ecosystem health. Over the last 20 years, the Malpai Group has been involved in efforts aimed at making the protection of endangered species in the area more compatible with rural livelihoods. In cooperation, their efforts on behalf of the jaguar, the leopard frog, the log-nosed bat, the ridge-nosed rattlesnake, among others, has resulted in a more secure future for these animals, as well as for the landowners whose livelihoods help maintain their habitats. Here's a great quote that demonstrates the influence of the organization. Quote, Perhaps as important as any single thing we've accomplished is the fact that this small group has had significant influence on the way that ranchers, the environmental community, the government, and the public perceive conservation and ranching today. The focus is moving away from confrontation, regulation, and litigation toward finding common ground and working together, using the best available science, working at the level closest to the ground, and exhibiting real stewardship. End of quote. 
what you seem to be able to do, and you were able to work with a lot of different groups, Mr. We Warner. We had to. I mean, you, had, and it was it was a pleasure. I, I tell you, we were Nature Conservancy was a big one to help us get to know the right people, and not only with the, the environmental type people, but the agency people, Forest yeah. Service, the BLM, the state land, yeah, the Fish and Wildlife Service. All of those have something to do with all this country. So yeah. if you can get all those people together and agree on keeping it open and keeping it the way it is, I mean, for hunters, for ranchers, fragmentation, we're trying to keep, keep it, it open, fragmented. You know, I, tell me if, if this is a true assessment, and this is partly what I read inside of your book, Okay, is that, and this book was written about you, you didn't write the book, but the author, Ed, said that you had a lot of tact and, and wisdom in working with all these different people to, to bring it in with a lot of people, maybe some of these groups would have naturally been in conflict with one another, but, but you were able to say, Hey, we're really all on the same team here. And you were able to bring a bunch of people together yeah. for a purpose, which was, I mean, quite I, a feat. I, I was part of it, but I tell you, we had, we had some other players, uh, our neighbors, some of these ranchers, were more better at that than I, I was. But I, I helped in any way I could. Yeah. And and we would we would have we had the head of the Forest Service, the head of the BLM, the head of all these Fish and Wildlife Service come from Washington, mm-hmm. and we'd put them on mules. That's where I came in. I'd put them on a good mule and take them to the top of the Pelosia <laughs> Mountains and yeah. show them what we were talking about. We were a part of it. We hosted a lot of it because we had the facilities here to hold meetings, and also we could feed group, groups of people that come in. And yeah, we didn't wine them and dine them, trying to make them. We we just kind of rewarded them for taking the time to come and look. Yeah, you know, yeah. and 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 I tell you, we got a lot done. The fruit of success almost always grows from the seed of failure, and sometimes that part of the journey is overlooked. An influential event in Mr. Warner's life took place in the early 1980s, long before the success of the Malpai Borderlands group, and I want to see if Mr. Warner is open to talking about it. You got in a tussle with one of the border agents. Yeah, Uh, I, I did. Did that change the way you, you saw bet. that you needed to deal with people can you, you talk you to me bet. about that why sure yeah you bet that did just tell me that kind of tell me the story and then tell me how it affected I, you. I had a pretty pretty volatile temper when i was younger and, and a lot of stuff I, I i did then that i wouldn't do nowadays yeah i'd get my butt kicked nowadays but <laughs> anyway uh, i don't know you that, still look pretty wiry that fellow was that fellow was out of line no yeah. doubt about it. He told me what he could do and uh, anywhere he wanted on my needed land, and I had I couldn't do anything about it. And I told him I thought I could, and he said, "Well, you sure can." So I did. <laughs> but anyway, it, it got me in a big trouble. You, one thing about it, he was a federal uniformed officer. Mm-hmm. I darn sure took him to the ground and rub, rubbed his head in the dirt. I mean, it was just a. How old were you, Mr. Warner? Uh, probably forty-seven, forty-eight. Okay. I could go on and on about that, but uh, that—that that of course, that's a felony. 
Anytime mm. you would, uh, touch a federal officer in an in a, a assault, mm-hmm. a federal officer, you that's, that's a felony charge. And there's no doubt about it. I did it. There wasn't, mm. And I never made uh, any excuses. I just told them why I did it. And uh, I didn't go to prison, but I came that close. And also, if, if you have a felony charge, you can't have a firearm for so many years. Mm-hmm. And it affects your way of life. So it taught me, big boy, you better be careful what you're doing. And they told me that some of the agents, they had an agent that dealt with things like that, and they came and talked to me. And they said, Warner, what you should have done is gone to his supervisor and, yeah. and, and let them take care of it. And I said, well, now I can see that. At the time, I was hot, I was tired, and this guy was telling me what I, and he was standing on my private land, and we were talking about the effect of vehicle traffic over right. my private land where right. there was no roads. Right. I, I, I just figured that, that in my way of thinking right then, I had a right to protect my property yeah. too. Yeah. But he wasn't, but he wasn't a federal, I, I was in the wrong, no, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, but so was he. And, and well, the way it turned out, I didn't go to prison and they shipped him out of here. Yeah. And, and it, it was, but it was a thing that I, I wished I'd have gone about a different and, way. Well, it, but what I take away from it is that later you became very skillful in dealing with these people. And that, that event changed yeah. the course of kind of who and, you were and how you worked with these people. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and really, I respect the law enforcement yeah. 100%. I really, there, there are some guys in law enforcement that probably don't deserve to be there. But by and large, uh, I, I back those guys. I, I, sure. And, and part of that's just, it, I kind of learned, you know, they've got, a, they've got a job to do. Yeah. And it's a tough one. Uh, I'm not ashamed that that happened, but it taught me a good lesson. You know, I deeply value that you can say that because a lot of times negative things happen to people and it shapes them and makes them bitter and changes their life for the negative. But what I respect about your character is that that, you know, you can own up to it. And But it, I think it I think it changed you for the better. I'll tell you a little. I went up and told Daddy about it because I knew he was gonna he was gonna find out. Mm. And he sat there and listened, didn't say anything. And after I was through telling him, he said, "I didn't know it was against the law to hit one of those bastards." <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> man, your dad—he was taking your side, wasn't he? That's yeah, what a good dad's supposed said, to I do. Didn't know it was the law. <laughs> anyway, oh, that's great. In closing, I asked Mr. Warner if he had any advice for life. This is what he said. I, I tell you, it really doesn't pay you to, to worry about a lot of stuff. Because you, you just go ahead and do your best at what you're doing and, and don't let things get into your brain of it that's going to worry you. But And that's hard to do. That's mm-hmm. hard not to worry about, especially if it's family-oriented or... And other than that, it just kind of eat as healthy as you can and, and stay active. Yeah. Stay, don't sit on your butt. You work very hard, don't you? 
you know, as hard as I can. Yeah. <laughs> I it's not very hard anymore. Well, you're. I know tomorrow morning you're planning to get up at 4 a.m. Oh, yeah. And yeah, we, I know this evening we were with you and you worked till dark. I mean, that that's a pretty yeah. long day that you're putting yeah. in, which is probably pretty average for yeah, you. Yeah, I, I try, I tell you, in the summertime, I try to take an hour's nap in the middle of the day okay. after lunch or something like that. But I, as far as advice, just eat well and, of course, leave leave the any of the substance abuse out of your... I, I don't think a guy needs to smoke. He darn sure doesn't use, have to use alcohol in, in excess and then just do what you're happy doing. I, I tell you, I wouldn't... Uh, you can make a lot more money if you're interested in monetary-type reward, doing something besides hunting and renting. I mean, yeah. But I'd love to do it. I mean, it's something that I think if a person doing what he likes to do, that, that's a big thing for his head and his heart both why do you why do you love doing what you do what what is your reward for the kind of lifestyle that you live oh my gosh well it's very few people that get to be out in the lord's creation every day a lot of people never have the chance to even think about what i see during the day's time and, and you know i i pray and I, it does you good to pray mm-hmm. I, I tell you what it does it does you you may not get what you ask for but it sure at least you know you've done everything you can <laughs> but there's darn sure uh, something created the world we live in yeah i mean just think about what happens i mean the sun the moon and things that are tied to the tides and the the oceans the the landscape a little fawn born and that little sucker jumps up in a little while and goes to looking for a nipple Uh, you know what i mean Mm -hmm. that's something that the, the, the creator figured out and we haven't figured it all out yet Sequences of words strung together in English communicated through human vocal cords only carry so much weight by themselves. However, when those words are connected to a robust life, they have the power to truly impact us. I don't have a lot to say in closing other than I cherish the opportunity to know people like the Glens. On a personal level, I was deeply impacted by Mr. Warner's humility and how he carried himself despite his accomplishments, which could so easily be translated into pride. On a wider scale, I think the character and value system of the Glens is something that America can look to to remember where we came from. You and I can't change the course of a nation, nor can politicians or man-made laws but you and I can dictate and change how we live, our character, and our responses to the things that life will throw at us while we're on this planet. I'm not suggesting lack of civic involvement, but I am saying that real change starts in the heart of man, and that is really the only thing we can control. I love dry ground lion hunting, mules, and hound dogs. I love everything that the Glens have done for conservation. But what I mostly took away from them was deeper and almost indescribable. Long live the open country of the Southwest and the wild beasts, the cowboys, and the lion hunters that inhabit it. I can't thank you folks enough for listening to Bear Grease. We'll have one more podcast that will involve Mr. Warner. 
On the next episode, we'll be talking about the Borderlands Jaguars in the United States. It's wild and interesting stuff, so don't miss it. Please share Bear Grease with a friend this week and keep the open country open. Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule, and it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com Grease.